Hello, and welcome to another edition of the Pink Sheets Pharma Regulatory Podcast. I'm Derek Ingery, a senior writer at the Pink Sheet, and I'm joined by fellow senior writer Sarah Carlin-Smith, senior editor Sue Sutter, and executive editor Nielsen Hobbs. Today is February 18th, 2022, and this week we saw the end of the FDA's long wait for a new leader. Robert Califf was confirmed by the Senate this week with only 50 votes in the Senate, 50 votes, the fewest of any confirmed commissioner. But as I was told, there is no barely confirmed commissioner. He still takes charge of the agency and started working on February 17th. Califf has a laundry list of priorities already, namely continuing the coronavirus pandemic response and setting a path to transition from any of the drugs and vaccines from emergency use to full approval. He also has made promises to ensure confirmatory trials under accelerated approval are done in a timely manner, and we'll have to work with lawmakers and other potential reforms. In addition, he pledged to conduct a comprehensive review of opioids early in his tenure, including labeling changes. And there's also clinical trial reform, tobacco and e-cigarette regulation, food safety, and many other issues that would probably take this entire podcast to list. But the good news is Janet Woodcock, who has been acting commissioner for more than a year, agreed to stay on as principal deputy commissioner, at least for now, so uh, to help him deal with everything that he's got on his plate. So for the panel, if you were Dr. Califf and you were walking into the commissioner's office today on your second day, is there an issue you would want to attack first or maybe one that you feel like could generate some momentum for your administration early on? I I think the... uh... Silence uh, suggests that there's not a, not an easy win there for uh, um, for Robert uh, Robert Califf. Uh, um, you know, there's a uh, um, a host of stuff that uh, um, he could do. Uh, um, the memo uh, he sent out to uh, to staff focused on uh, misinformation, as Sarah wrote about in the, this morning's uh, um, email, and uh, you know, I think coming up with a uh, Splashier uh, um, uh, public relations campaign uh, or uh, you know communication strategy could uh, um, could be something he says he was going to do. I honestly don't think that it's uh, um, the case that uh, people don't know that the FDA thinks that vaccines work. Um, that's not the reason they're not getting them. They just don't trust the FDA. And uh, um, what uh, um, would change that trust is uh, obviously we're kind of you know personal connections and, uh, um, you know, showing the FDA uh, uh, doing what the uh, doubters think is the right thing in uh, in tough situations. I uh, honestly think that perhaps, uh, you know, postponing the uh, um, vaccine in, uh, you know, sort of the five and under is uh, um, something that could sort of kind of, uh, you know, show credibility and not sort of kind of a mad rush to uh, um, to approval, obviously, you can sort of kind of see from the other way too. That it's just another demonstration that the data is not really there. So that uh, you know, that's something that's sort of kind of uh, the uh, commissioner could make a quick change on. Whether it's going to be an impactful change on, I don't know. Um, you know, beyond that, I think the FDA challenges are pretty uh, um, deep and structural, and uh, not something that he alone, uh, you know, is going to be able to. Uh, uh, shift with just for kind of coming up with a uh, instructions for a uh, um, a short term strategy. Yeah, I know it's 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 hard to like you know pick out a thing like I I remember and the you know kind of like the first thing the president like the new president likes to do is to say like look I won some I did something I promised I was going to do this and look it's done on the first day and so they signed a bunch of executive orders and you know so <laughs> forth and you know I, yeah I mean I I was thinking as I was thinking about this I was one you know like. Could he 
quickly announced like the review of opioids in opioid policy, like, yeah, but you know, that's so deeply involved and requires so much work that it's, it'll be, you know, it could be a really long time before anybody actually, you know, some of that stuff comes comes back and changes are made. I mean, the, I don't know if he could say, you know, he could put out the directive to the review divisions maybe to say, um, you know, we want to, we need ideas to make sure these confirmatory trials for accelerated approvals are done, are done in a more timely manner. And, you know, you know, kind of get, get that ball rolling is, you know, something he could probably do quickly. Yeah. But, uh, a lot of this stuff is kind of more like, but Matt, like you said, this, uh, you know, deeply structural and not like easily, uh, easily fixed or even easily announced to that they're in the process of being fixed. <laughs> yeah. Accelerated approval is a very interesting, uh, situation. He, uh, you know, uh, um, was asked about it during his confirmation process and, uh, you know, essentially through kind of made a, uh, you know, relatively vague, but, uh, um, uh, you know, one would hope meaningful pledge to uh, uh, to Senator Wyden to uh, to address it. So uh, um, the fact that it was not mentioned in his uh, initial uh, um, memo suggests that he doesn't want to kind of uh, um, touch it right now, um, or at least for kind of that there's uh, still some disagreements within the FDA about sort of kind of how to proceed. He doesn't want to, uh, you know, declare which way they're going. Uh, without getting more uh, um, input from staff on that. But uh, you're right, that is a uh, um, a big thing. I strongly suspect that there will be uh, language in the upcoming uh, user fee authorizations uh, about that. And so they may just be sort of working with uh, Congress on what they're, uh, what they're supposed to do and uh, not want to sort of kind of roll out their own initiatives that may have to get uh, reversed or, uh, um, or altered uh, uh, once uh, Congress has its say. But uh, you know, there's a lot of, uh, um, a lot of stuff that he could be doing camps were kind of you know turn the uh, um you know turn the ship uh, on a dime but uh, um it's it, it was very interesting that he did not talk about accelerated approval in his uh, introductory uh, communication well and sarah has written about the oig uh review of the accelerated approval process and i, I sarah i seem to remember that that's not going to come out until after the user fee reauthorizations, but I wonder if, you know, Caliph is going to wait to see what OIG comes back with. Right, so that's supposed to come out in 2023, although they've suggested maybe there's a possibility of some sort of like interim reports um, and so forth. But yeah, I mean, I think dealing with accelerated approval, and I think we'll see this in Congress too with the user fees, is a um, going to be a delicate balancing act because Obviously, you know, there are people that are upset with the Aduhelm situation. (laughs) Go with that version of the name. Um, And, you know, there's been people that that have been concerned for a long time that companies don't quickly follow through on, you know, confirmatory studies or never follow through or so forth. But I also think when push comes to shove, we're going to see how popular this program also is with a lot of... um, Obviously, the industry with patient groups, um, pretty, you know, powerful patient groups, particularly in cancer. So, um, you know, I think it's it's more controversial in some ways than Caleb than some of the other things Caleb touched on in his initial memo as um, things he wants to tackle. And I think FDA is also in a kind of a 
difficult position because they really have to figure out what they can do on their own and what they really need additional authorities from Congress to be able to change. Well, one thing they could do right now with the existing accelerated approvals, and we've seen this in the Oncology Center of Excellence, is leaning on pushing, pressuring sponsors who still have unconfirmed uh, products on the market, confirmatory trials that are way delayed or slow to enroll or haven't even started yet or failed. And OCE and Rick Pazder have been very effective in the past year of getting sponsors to pull those off the market as delinquent or dangling. And I could see that policy extending beyond OCE. Uh, Granite cancer is the bulk of the accelerated approvals out there. Yeah, I could see that happening too. But you know, I, I mean, as, as I'm sure you know, and, and as we've seen, it's not as simple as just saying, okay, we're going to start pressuring, you know, I want these trials done. And, you know, especially if you start pushing on some of these, you know, like some of the uh, some of the, the non-cancer drugs. I mean, they, you know, some of the rare disease uh, drugs come to mind where patients are getting them, patients are happy. And all of a sudden now you're saying this the drug could disappear because you're the, the confirmatory trials going on and on and on too long. And, you know, the, you I you would envision a lot of pushback if something like that, you know, if if they start to try and, you know, get some of that, you know, pressure some of those companies. Look at McKenna. Yeah, that uh, when, a, when a company doesn't want it to happen, it's a very uh, involved process for FDA to actually uh, withdraw the accelerated approval as uh, you've been writing about uh, um, in great detail, Sue. The other thing I thought about, too, is you know, get, go with the communication strategy. I mean, that that's something that could change relatively quickly. And, you know, you wonder if, you know, obviously, you know, Dr. Califf has a Twitter handle now. He got one yesterday, like his first, you know, that was like the first one of the first things that um, that happened uh, that he made him, you know, he said, I'm 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 on the job now. I've been I've taken my oath of office and here's my memo to the staff. And um, you wonder if he's going to adopt kind of the I don't know, the Scott Gottlieb theory of tweeting and communicating, which was to tweet a lot and try and give the media and other people something to write about pretty much on a pretty regular basis. I think he, I think he Gottlieb even talked about that. Like I had it was in my mind. I need to give them something to write about all the <clears> time. <throat> so, you know, and you wonder if, I mean, if you're talking about being proactive with communications, Gottlieb was very proactive and, you know, putting a lot of stuff out there that we, you know, that at least, you know, for the trade pressing, for the lay press, for everybody, you know, on that. I want you wonder if you if they maybe try to go back to something like that. Well, there's only one Scott Gottlieb. But uh, now that uh, um, Caleb has taken uh, Gottlieb's crown for sort of the uh, the commissioner approved with the least votes, perhaps, uh, <laughs> you know, at the end of uh, um, uh, um, Caleb's tenure, he'll be as a. Uh, you know, uh, popular as uh, or more popular than uh, um, than Scott Gottlieb. Gottlieb. We can only hope that sort of FDA's reputation is uh, um, headed in that direction, sort of kind of on a uh, um, sort of kind of the, the inverse proportion to uh, the number of uh, um, uh, confirmation votes. So. Yeah, it's interesting that uh, you know something we'll be watching going forward now that we have uh, somebody that can uh, you know a, a new person to set the agenda for the agency. So. 
Next, we're going to take a look at some of the ripple effects from the February 14th Oncologic Drugs Advisory Committee on Inavent and Eli Lilly's PD-1 inhibitor Centilumab. So you had an interesting story on the lessons learned from that meeting. What should sponsors take away from this? Right. So it actually was a, a February 10th meeting, so it was last oh, sorry. Thursday. And um, so uh, Inavent and Lilly tried to get an approval for a novel PD-1 inhibitor here in a very common condition, non-small cell lung cancer. And they tried to get approval solely on the basis of a phase three study conducted in China. This study was conducted originally solely to get approval in China, but they felt confident in trying to bring the results to the US FDA based in part on some comments that Rick Pazder made at AACR back in 2019. And uh, long story short, the meeting did not go well for Lilly and Innovent. And um, some of it, I felt like, was of their own doing. Um, they There were a lot of issues with um, informed consent in the trial. The informed consent was not updated when uh, pembrolizumab was approved over in China for the same indication. So there were a lot of concerns by the agency and the ODAC members that, <clears throat> that uh, clinical trial participants were not uh, adequately informed of the other therapeutic options. There were some questions about how much confidence FDA could have in the data having been generated entirely in China, FDA not having a lot of interaction with these investigators in the past, and there being some very large-scale data scandals in the past in China. FDA wanted to know if the investigators had been implicated in any of those scandals, and Lillian and Event could not answer that question. So <laughs> that, that did not make FDA happy. Um, and then finally, you know, perhaps the, the great cardinal sin is Innovent and Lilly did not seek FDA's input in designing the trial in the first place. As I say, um, the trial initially was solely intended to support an approval in China. The trial was conducted in 2018. Innovent and Lilly had signed on to a collaboration to co-develop some products, including this one in China in 2015. But it was not until 2020 that the companies entered a strategic alliance to pursue Centilumab globally. And the first time they met with FDA was in April 2021, or April 2020, and they already had the data in hand. And that does not go over well, especially with the Cancer Review Division. So as I say, you know, I think in a lot of ways they sort of shot themselves in the foot. I don't know that it would have been an easy uh, meeting if some of these issues had not cropped up because FDA has real serious concerns about the generalizability of an all-China trial to the U.S. population, particularly given the, the racial and ethnic makeup of patients here in the U.S. But it, it was an ugly meeting to watch. I, I don't know. May, maybe it's just because I hear this all the time just because of of my job, but I still get confused when, when it comes up, where FDA officials constantly, every time you hear an FDA official speak publicly, they say, 
If you have a question, come in and talk to us. We answer questions. We want to hear questions. We want to help you. And then if you have a novel idea, come and talk to us. We'll work something out. And then you occasionally, it's not all the time, but occasionally you hear about this where FDA isn't happy because nobody came and told them what was going on. And then all of a sudden this, you know, this, they, and you know, this, this kind of issue pops up. I mean, I, I guess, you know, maybe this one is kind of a unique situation because, like you said, it started in China and then they decided, oh, let's try and, and get, you know, approvals in other countries. But I just wonder how you kind of get into, you get backed into this corner where this, you know, keep this come, this kind of situation, you know, emerges. Yeah, I mean, covering, you know, these issues for 20 years, I can't tell you how many times I've heard FDA say, come talk to us early and often, early and often. <laughs> Really often. I think there is this sort of basic human instinct that sort of kind of thinks that it's uh, easier to ask uh, forgiveness than permission. That sort of kind of with the uh, with the data in hand, they you know perhaps thought they could sort of persuade uh, um, FDA to their uh, to their side more than uh, you know asking if they needed to do a new trial or uh, or what uh, um, what it was. But uh, you're absolutely right. That sort of it's, it's often the uh, Often the case that uh, just like in bad movies, you know, so like if only they had talked to each other, this wouldn't have happened. So, uh, um, you know, I uh, um, I do feel some sympathy for you know for folks who did a study and then sort of kind of uh, you know got uh, smacked around by FDA because it wasn't exactly what they wanted. But uh, you're right that there was a uh, there was a way out of it that they did not proceed, which could have been harder at the time, but uh, in retrospect probably should have been pursued. And Sue, I was kind of curious, like, did Lily because Lily is working with us you know, a smaller, I guess, less FDA regulatory experience company. I mean, at what point did Lily get involved? And do you think, you know, some of this would have been handled differently if Lily was always the company working here? Or I guess it just surprised me a little bit that some of the errors seemed more like the kinds of things you 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 see with a less, a less FDA savvy company. So Lily... Lily signed on to a collaboration agreement in 2015 for development of multiple products in China, including Scintillamav. And then the Orient study was started in August 2018. So you could see how Lily would have had some say in, in what that study looked like. Again, that was conducted with the purpose of getting approval in China. So then in 2020, when the top line results came out, um, Lilly entered into an alliance to pursue Scintillamab's approval globally. So it seemed Lilly felt confident enough in the results to sign on to this and to agree to, you know, pursue this in, in the U.S. and, and wherever else. Um, that they wouldn't have anticipated some of these problems beyond the whole issue of generalizability to the U.S. population is rather surprising to me. You know, Mike, our colleague Mike McCann at Provision Policy did a piece on how, you know, Lilly had intended to disrupt PD-1 pricing with this drug, but have they in fact really disrupted their relationship with the FDA's Oncology Review Office? Because there were definitely some unpleasant um, exchanges during the meeting about who said what and what meeting and when the meetings took place. 
And um, also there was a lot of questioning of Lilly's commitment to clinical trial diversity, because here they show up at FDA with a trial conducted in a single country that's not reflective of the United States. I think that's an important uh, uh, timeline you laid out there, uh, um, uh, Sue, you know, because even I think, uh, you know, observers of this who, uh, um, you know, think a lot about the FDA may have gotten the impression like, oh, you know, Passer said in 2019 that sort of kind of China studies are uh, encouraged and then, uh, you know, Lily sort of came forward with this existing data. But, you know, clearly the, the, the data they had didn't meet FDA standards for a variety of reasons, not just because it was China only. That's that wasn't the only problem. It wasn't through kind of that that was the the sticking point because sort of uh, FDA changed their mind. There was a, a whole host of uh, you know design issues that uh, um, that didn't uh, didn't satisfy FDA criteria, not just the the population. Exactly, and even at the meeting, one of the Lilly executives acknowledged that in retrospect, we didn't handle the informed consent issue as well as we should have. So when you have somebody from one of the companies coming out and saying that at a meeting, I think that's rather um, telling. Yeah, I thought it was, especially with um, uh, Mike McCann's story, just describing so, you know in detail some of the exchanges that the, it you know it seemed like it was getting preheated there. You know, including with a you know I think it was a there was a, an instance where a Lily slide had quotes for meeting minutes and. FDA officials were thought that were so angry that they were being that the committee was being misled potentially that they they said I want you to waive privilege so we can show you the entire list of correspondence that we have that shows this is not what happened. <laughs> yeah, FDA felt that they were being taken out of context and there was a lot more, you know, that was not being shown to the advisory committee. Uh, FDA referred to it as, you know, misleading, incredibly misleading, I think was the characterization they used. So, yeah, this will be a, a fun one to see how what happens after the dust settles, especially, uh, you know, in, in this in this space and, and you know, and going forward for, you know, clinical trial diversity and so forth. But uh, really, really interesting. Uh, it's pretty much an interesting it was an interesting lead up to to the meeting. Now, you know, all the kind of the ripple effects after the meeting are, you know, are, are uh, you know, really, really hitting home for a lot of people, so. And it'll be interesting to see a number of the applications that are pending at FDA with China-only data are in um, conditions that are not really studied here in the U.S. or not common in the U.S., particularly nasof nasopharyngeal cancer. And FDA has said repeatedly now that, you know, they would take a different view of things for something that is a rare condition here in the U.S. or for which there are not good uh, therapeutic alternatives. So we'll have to see what happens with those applications, how they treat those. Finally, we're going to turn to Matt, who recently returned from sunny and maybe warmer Orlando in the Association for Accessible Medicine's annual meeting, a gathering of generics executives and other stakeholders to discuss the state of the industry. So, Matt, what did you hear while you were down there? Well, it was my uh, first uh, uh, business trip uh, since the pandemic, and uh, uh, it was uh, quite an experience. Uh, the uh, the AAM, the Association for Accessible uh, Medicines, that uh, uh, sponsored uh, uh, sponsored it, you know, sort of sent out various uh, procedures and protocols about uh, COVID safety that. Uh, um, you know, everyone had to wear a mask. You had to sort of demonstrate vaccination status, and you were going to be tested before you could uh, 
um, even pick up your badge and uh, um, get into the meeting uh, um, uh, location. So, uh, um, you know, uh, you know, I flew down and uh, um, you know, everyone was working a mast in the airport and the plane and uh, uh, in the uh, um, in the in the Uber, uh, we were both masked, and then sort of I uh, um, I walk in and get, and get uh, tested, which is sort of the first step, and uh, then I sort of go into the waiting room to wait for my testing results, and there's someone in there without a mask, and I was like, oh my gosh, we're we're not in Kansas anymore, and well, I guess I guess we probably would be in Kansas. That's probably how they do it in Kansas right now, but we're not in my urban <laughs> bubble anymore. I guess is what uh, um, what I realized, and uh, um, you know, despite these. Uh, um, these protocols, pretty much no one was wearing a mask. Um, and so I didn't wear a mask. I didn't want to be sort of kind of the uh, the weirdo. I sort of kind of gave into that kind of uh, social uh, um, social pressure. So, uh, um, you know, uh, during meals and, you know, breaks and just sort of socializing, I was unmasked. When I was kind of sitting watching the panels, I, I put a mask on, not, not so much out of sort of kind of great fear of the virus, but just because, you know, I didn't want to get infected, you know, just because I don't want to get sick, just because I don't like being sick in general. And then also, you know, if I got infected, maybe I'd give it to my kids. And that's where kind of the, the testing protocols at their schools might mean that they, you know, they would get picked up and sort of have to stay uh, stay at home in, uh, you know, this sort of bizarre, you know, quarantine uh, situation we have now with uh, um, uh, COVID that sort of, you know, you don't uh, do that with flu and obviously COVID more more serious. But I think uh, at this point, my biggest worry about uh, um, the virus is for kind of uh, arbitrarily keeping my kids uh, out of school uh, because of it, uh, although it's you know still remains a uh, um, you know serious uh, disease, but uh, that was for kind of a uh, um, an eye-opening experience on uh, on in that respect, and then sort of on the uh, um, the policy stuff and the uh, the you know sort of kind of you know uh, more more broadly sort of kind of what it's like to be at a uh, um, a meeting these days aside from the uh, um, the COVID stuff. It's a uh, it's more of the same for the uh, the generic firms. Uh, on you know, unfortunately, there are. Uh, um, it's a uh, it's you know it's a very tough industry. It's a on the one hand uh, you know a highly technical, highly regulated uh, um, product. Uh, you know that's uh, um, the uh, the stuff that they have to do to sort of get through FDA is uh, not dissimilar from what a uh, brand firm has to do. Uh, you know in terms of the uh, the manufacturing controls, and uh, obviously they're not uh, you know coming up with the uh, the the science around the treatment, but uh, the the science around uh, creating an exact replica of a uh, a product isn't nothing. So there, uh, um, you know, there's a fairly uh, um, intensive, uh, um, you know, and uh, costly uh, development timeline for them to sort of come up with these uh, generics and biosimilars. But uh, once they get on the uh, the market, there are uh, um, by design, you know, multiple uh, um, companies making the exact same thing, and their uh, their whole business model is based on not differentiating between uh, um, between the competing uh, um, products. And so, uh, you know, with only three wholesalers uh, um, in the U.S., it's a uh, it's a tough uh, it's a tough business proposition. As uh, Dan Letter, the CEO of AAM, says, you know, it's the uh, the many selling to the few. And so, uh, um, you know, how do you uh, develop a portfolio that uh, um, allows uh, um, you to stand out from the crowd and uh, not get you know commodity pricing for something that sort of is was not a uh, you know commodity development uh, in terms of sort of the uh, the tens of millions of dollars that it took you to develop it is a um, is a real challenge for them. Yeah, it's really interesting. One of the stories you wrote was looking at um, consolidation in the industry, which I mean, that they've that's been a problem for a long time now as well. But it 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 seemed like, and I, I hope I'm characterizing this correctly, that 
there there isn't as much consolidation now, and so they're worried about that too. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think the uh, the companies themselves never so much worried about uh, consolidation. Obviously, sort of kind of uh, you know synergies and redundancies, but sort of kind of affect uh, um, staff, and that's uh, um, layoffs are not a good thing to uh, um, to contemplate. But uh, um, you know, in terms of sort of kind of being able to stand up to the uh, the wholesalers and sort of get a uh, um, a big portfolio that could sort of maybe give you a little more leverage than than you might have if you're just uh, you know a small uh, um, a smaller firm selling a few products. You know that sort of was a uh, you know a frequent strategy, and obviously generics are not the only uh, um, you know pharma companies that uh, um, you know, sort of kind of bulk up when uh, um, when times get tough. But uh, what they've uh, realized is it's sort of the uh, um, the uh, antitrust authorities in the U.S. and Europe are uh, a lot more uh, uh, skeptical of that uh, these days, they feel. And so, uh, you know, they may allow a merger to go forward, but they would uh, require a, uh, um, a divestiture of uh, um, some product lines. And, uh, um, you know, as they were saying, they can't really predict which product lines would be divested or required to be divested as part of that uh, um, that process when they go into it. So it's not worth going into because they don't know what, you know, the company they're hoping to, to uh, um you know, or operate afterwards would actually look like because of the various uh, divestitures. So the, uh, um, you know, that that avenue, uh, that strategy is uh, um, not available to them at the uh, um, at the moment. Yeah, it's very interesting. Um, you know, interesting discussion that the, that they're at, that they were having down there. Um, before we go, because I know a lot, you know a lot of listeners, I'm sure, are wondering how we can get back to in-person conferences and meetings and so forth. And we're even hearing a lot of talk about that now in FDA circles. There was a there's one one meeting now that's been noticed that said it's going to be virtual, but it could be in person if the depending on how the protocols and so forth um, uh, play out. Um, did you get a sense down there that? There's a hunger to return to in-person meetings, you know, while you were there. I think everybody had a great time. I think if people were were very happy to be back and seeing each other, and uh, you know, the uh, um, they had a color-coded lanyard system where it was for kind of if you you know asked for the green lanyard for your uh, um, your conference badge, it meant uh, you know fist bumps uh, and or elbow bumps, uh, um, welcome, and then for kind of uh, um, yellow meant. Uh, Give me some space, and orange means uh, kind of stay away. And then, uh, you know, by the time I checked in, which was for kind of the uh, the afternoon of the uh, um, you know before the uh, um, uh, the opening reception, um, they were already all out of green. You know, I got a a, a basic black one that I guess the uh, um, the uh, um, the hotel sort of had uh, had lying around. And then sort of kind of by uh, um, by the next day, people that uh, you know were sort of kind of hugging each other were sort of wearing the uh, the yellow and the red, and it was. Uh, um, it was obvious that everyone just wanted to uh, um, to put the uh, pandemic behind them and just to get get back to uh, you know sort of uh, you know schmoozing and socializing and uh, um, you know everything that uh, um, that used to happen uh, at these uh, at these events and uh, um, you know whether whether we all sort of come down with COVID I guess we're uh, a few days out and I feel fine but uh, I guess it, I'll I'll know in a week or so whether it was uh, um, really worth it but uh, um, you know I think. Uh, um, at least it showed me that sort of kind of uh, um, there's uh, um, you know uh, you know as 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 effective as for kind of Zoom and Teams and uh, all that are there's no there's no substitute for sort of kind of that uh, the kind of kind of that that kind of direct uh, um, uh, you know human uh, human socializing. So uh, you know I do think that sort of kind of uh, um, uh, you know by uh, um, by next year there probably will not be any uh, um, 
COVID protocols, I suspect, at this uh, at this meeting, and uh, I suspect our uh, um, calendars will be full of uh, in-person as opposed to online events. Well, that's certainly good. I know, you know, you know, well, yeah, like you said, while we're we were all excited that Zoom and Teams were were available when this all started, I think some of us are getting, uh, you know, are hoping that to actually go to a meeting and even though you know, they can be all day and, and uh, you know, and, uh, and tiring and so forth. But, uh, you know, we're hoping to be able to 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 start doing those things more often uh, here pretty soon. Yeah, you're starting to see some uh, policy arguments about that. In fact, if I could uh, pull Sue in, uh, you know, we talked about McKenna earlier. Uh, you know, she just uh, wrote about the uh, um, the this, the Cobus's request to uh, to have an in-person uh, um hearing on their uh, accelerated with the uh, approval withdrawal. And uh, I don't know if you think that kind of a delay or complicate the uh, the process, Sue? Well, the process has already been so delayed. I mean, we still don't have a hearing date at this point. So I'm not sure that how much that would delay things. Um, their reason for wanting an in-person hearing is primarily based on um, technical considerations and the challenges of doing um, a lengthy public meeting um, virtually, which we all understand having sat through hundreds of hours of these meetings in the last two years. But clearly, and they're not, they didn't say this, but clearly they have got to see a virtual meeting as taking a lot of the emotion out of the room. Um, I'm sure that they would like to pack FDA's White Oak uh, Conference Center with people who have been personally affected by um, preterm birth. And that's, you know, that emotion's just not going to come through if you're doing it over Adobe Connect. Yeah, I agree. And, and uh, you know, certainly whether it's a, you know, a, a strategy or not, but, you know, I, I, I wonder if, you know, how the FDA is going to handle this. And, you know, if, if it turns out that the hearing date can be, you know, push to a point, you know, where, you know, cases are down and, and everyone gets comfortable with it if they'll, uh, you know, if they'll go along with this idea. Yeah, I mean, I think we're still quite a few months away um, from a hearing date at this point. Yeah, it'll be another interesting thing to, to watch going forward. Well, that's all for this week. For more, check out our website at www.thepinksheet.com. You can also find this and previous podcast episodes on iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, SoundCloud, and Spotify by searching for Pharma Intelligence. And if you're so inclined, feel free to give us a review. Thanks again for listening to the Pink Sheet Pharma Regulatory Podcast. I'm Derek Ingery with Sarah Carlin-Smith, Sue Sutter, and Matt Hobbs. Stay safe, get vaccinated, and we'll see you next time. 